Titus chapter 3. If you've been here for any length of time, you might realize that I've preached this at least once before, possibly more, I'm not sure. And it could have been just reading through the New Testament as I've done, was uh, doing earlier this week, that I said, you know what? In light of the fact that I had way too many of my people in my house all week in order to do proper study for a new sermon, I'll pick one out of the um, off the computer and see what happens. It could have been by virtue just reading through this passage. But a wonderful text, an exhortation is given to live as Christians ought to live. Notice verses 1 and 2. Remind them, the believers, to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Then verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So I am affirming this constantly, that these are good things to remind ourselves of. This is an exhortation uh, to live as Christians ought to live. Verses 1 and 2 and verse 8 are kind of, kind of the, the bread to the sandwich, and the meat is in between. But we also have another, we have uh, not only an exhortation to live as Christians ought to live here, we have a reminder of what they used to be like, don't we? Notice verse 3. For, I kind of accentuated the word for earlier for a reason. For, live this way. For, live properly as Christians ought to live. For, we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. So we have an exhortation, live as you ought to live, be grateful, be thankful. And then we have a reminder of our past guilt and our past way of life, and then we have a reason why they are not what they used to be like. Live godly. Why? You're not what you used to be. Why aren't you what you used to be? Verses 4 through 7 answer that. So the verses we'll consider function, we're going to consider 4 through 7. Function as a reminder to Christians of how they went from being lost to saved how they went from darkness to light. We're not born Christians. We are born again to become Christians. We aren't born in the light. We aren't born saved. We get saved. That means something happens. So the verses we will consider function as a reminder to Christians how they went from condemnation to no condemnation. In fact, they go from no condemnation to heirs according to the promise of eternal life. So it explains this great change that occurs in the life of those who God saves. The basis for such a change and its glorious benefits and blessings. So we could say this, the text this morning, uh, Titus 3, 4 through 7, functions as a motive for believers to live as they ought as believers due to the great work God has wrought for them and the effects of it brought to them. So 
Why should I live the Christian life if I profess to be a Christian? Because of the great salvation work, the great saving work of God in Christ for you. So guilt, grace, gratitude. Our motive, chief motive for living as we ought to is gratitude. I've found out over the years, the more I understand why I ought to be grateful, the more at least potentially grateful I tend to be. If you realize what your misery was outside of Christ and what it took to go from misery to lavished grace, um, there is a tendency in us to be more grateful and thankful. Now, the text we're going to look at is Titus 3, 4 through 7 uh, as a a unit. I have, as my first point here, really profound one, the simple assertion of the text. What I mean by the simple assertion is there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a independent clause, we're doing English grammar this morning, upon which the rest of this section hangs. An independent clause is a sentence that can just stand on its own without other things. Now, if we look at verse 4, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. If we put a period there, we go, no, it doesn't work. When you use the word when... You need something to complement it, to fulfill it. So that, that can't be the simple assertion. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Now that sounds good, but again, that's just a prepositional phrase. It's dependent on something else to kind of give you a context. But according to his mercy, that doesn't work either. It sounds great, but... And then we have these three words. He saved us. If you're going, there it is. You're right. That can stand on its own. But he saved us. Full stop, right? It could. It doesn't. But it could stand on its own. That's the simple assertion of the text. Three words. He saved us. But he saved us, we could say. This is simple, yet it is Profound. So our text teaches us this. God saves the best of people. Now, if it just said God saves us and there wasn't a larger context, somebody might conclude, yeah, God saves us because we're good. We're at church, aren't we? Uh, But notice, again, what the people used to live like. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And that comes right after an exhortation to live as Christians ought to, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men because we used to live like unbelievers because we were. We were like this, but he saved us. Again, if it just sat there all by itself, uh, somebody could take it as he saved us because 
We're good. I mean, I'm me. I mean, I got my faults, but I'm not as, I'm not in prison. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Um, but again, these words come into context. So let's look at the uh, three words, he saved us. I think this is actually astounding. It is staggering. And the deeper you understand this, the more you contemplate it and connect it with other uh, truths of Holy Scripture, it's actually a thrilling statement indeed. So he, this refers back to verse 4, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. So he has an um, antecedent, something before it, that describes who the he is. It is God, our Savior. He saved us. Not we saved us. Not the pastor saved us. Not baptism saved us. But God saved us. God, our Savior, who is kind and loving and whose kindness and love appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice this is an appearance of divine love and kindness. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, we'll look at that in a second, but notice the second word of our simple assertion, saved. This means to rescue from danger. So everybody is in danger of something coming out of the womb. There is this thing called original Sin and its guilt, that is, the just liability to punishment. Because Adam, our father, sinned and plunged us all into sin. But we do our, we do our part as well. We have actual personal sins, uh, way more than we'll, we care to, to know. And so that's the danger that we're in. God is in the business, however, of rescuing those who are in danger of his judgment due to their sins, a danger that no one can get themselves out of. The gospel is not, you're in danger, get out of it. You can do it. For some reason, other the high school cheer just came into my mind. You can do it, you can do it. We know you can do it. Even though my brother's... Varsity football team lost 40 games in a row. They couldn't do it. Uh, they couldn't do it. And we can't do it. Okay? We can't. You don't. Now do the gospel and go to heaven. How about this? Do the law and realize you can't. And believe the gospel because it's the only answer. He saved us. That's the third word of our simple assertion. Paul includes himself here, first person plural here. He saved us. So Paul is saying, even though the Christian church calls me, might call me in the future, Saint Paul, there was a time when I wasn't a saint. And saint in the biblical case sense means set apart by God graciously, not because You got a halo, and you got wings, and you float six inches off the ground, 
but because God set you apart to save. He saved us. And that, by implication, if it includes Paul and his, the recipients of his letter, it must include all subsequent believers as well. We can say this of us if we're saved. If I'm saved, it's because God saved me. If I'm saved, it's not because I saved myself, somebody else saved me, or God helped me to get saved, but God saved me. One of the prophets in the Old Testament says, salvation is of the Lord. Some of you have read that. I think it's the introduction to the death of death in the death of Christ, which is written by John Owen. There was an introduction written by J.I. Packer, and he expounds those words. Salvation is of the Lord. It was designed by him, his decree, It was slowly but surely revealed by him progressively, Old Testament era. It was wrought or won by him in the incarnation and sufferings and glory of Christ. And it is also applied by him. God saved us. Now, what were these us, usums? What were these uses like? When he saved them. Verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish. um, Disobedient, deceived. Serving various lusts and pleasures. Living in malice and envy. Hateful and hating one another. See, you got to come to that point. Uh, uh, If you're an unbeliever, you have to see... You know what, that sounds pretty bad, but that sounds kind of too close to home as well. That sounds like me, really deep down. Now, believers, especially educated believers, go, you don't know the half of it. It was way worse than that, you know. Um, We ourselves were also once foolish. Those are the people God saves. God saves foolish people. God saves disobedient people. God saves deceived people. God saves people who are in the midst of serving various lusts and pleasures, who are living in malice and envy, who are hateful and hating one another. Those are the the candidates for salvation. That's the, the pool from which God makes sinners saints. We can say this, there is... Uh, the pool from which Christians have been taken was a cesspool. See, believer, you have to come, you have to go, you know what? I might not always like the way the pastor puts it. Maybe he should have used a different word. Cesspool sounds horrible. Um, But you know what? He's right. And other believers are going, no, make it sound worse. It was worse than that. Uh, So these are the people that God saves. He saves sinners. He saves transgressors of his law. He saves guilty people. He justifies the ungodly in the language of Paul elsewhere. Even Paul himself was not saved because he was a saint. You know, if you read the book of Acts, you can kind of get a little background in Galatians 1 and 2, uh, 1. Maybe two as well. But anyway, if you read the book of Acts, you can get a little background behind this letter that Paul writes after he became a Christian apostle. He was actually going around with authorities 
to find Christians and dragging them out of their homes and putting them in jail. Men and women, what a man, right? You believe Jesus is the Messiah as promised in the Old Testament? You're going to jail, let's go. That, that was Paul. He was a, a, a reviler. He, 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 he spoke very viciously and loudly against what he now believes and writes to defend. Now, no one is saved because they're saved, right? If these are the people he saves, the ones in, uh, described in verse 3, these are what the Christians were before they became Christians, then we can say that no one is saved because they are good. We have to say just the opposite, right? In one sense. People are saved because they're bad. <laughs> and God has a rescue mission, a plan of redemption that he's revealed to us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. God saves sinners. God saves bad people. He saved us. Now, this is a wonderful, great, and exclusive doctrine of the Christian faith. Salvation is God's work and man's gift, right? It's what God has done, and it is what we receive because it's given to us. It's not what we earn. It's what we receive. You know what faith is. It's the soiled hand that reaches out believing and receiving what God gives. Salvation comes as the result of God's work, not as the result of our work. I got a few nods. I'm going to say that again. Salvation comes to sinners as a result of God's work, not our work. So if you're here trying to work your way to God, don't do it. Believe the gospel. God saves sinners. Sinners do not work their way into God's favor. The morally respectable are not those God saved because there are no morally respectable people. Deep down, okay? In the vertical sense. Might be horizontally, you know, externally. You have a neighbor that's faithful to his wife and um, maybe helps the, the widow next door take her trash out or whatever, uh, pays his taxes, goes to work on time, punches the card in when he actually starts to work and punches the card when he actually finishes working. There's another cultural oops there. But that's all this way. I'm talking about there are no morally respectable in the eyes of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here we have God saving sinners. Now, some of you have probably heard this quote before. Listen to uh, Martin Luther. I can't quote everything I've read of Martin Luther. Sometimes it's not appropriate for every ear. But this one is. He says this, God saves sinners, evil persons, fools, and weaklings in order to make them righteous, good, wise, and strong. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Now watch the text again. But when the kindness and 
the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. The love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. I want to say that the love of God flows forth and bestows good. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly. So that, that's the simple assertion of the text. Three words, he saved us. Now, there are four things we learn about salvation from the text. Four things we learn about salvation from the text. I use the, the grammatical term or phrase, independent clause earlier. Remember that? It can stand on its own. He saved us. Well, there are dependent words or phrases or clauses in that case here that kind of fill out what it means that God saves us. And the first one, you can see it in verse 4. I'm calling this, when salvation was accomplished, or the historical accomplishment of salvation. And here are the words. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, he saved us. He saved us. When? When he, we can look back and say, well, in one sense, I was saved by virtue of the accomplished salvation of God through Christ in his in the appearing of this kindness and love of God in him. So this is another way of basically saying John 3:16 for God so loved that he gave uh, there it is love gives but the objects of the love that's given are not like attractive love makes the unattractive attractive by virtue of the merits of Christ. God's kindness and love appeared. Pretty sure that's a typical word for Paul to talk about either the first coming or the second coming of Christ. In other words, this visible appearance of divine love in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was out of divine pity and the will of the divine persons for man's well-being, that God sent Christ to the world. So the, the, there's you know Christmas last week, um, our society, and by the way, many, many societies all throughout the earth, every year that comes around, it still fascinates me to think about how this. Publicly and through our governmental leaders, there's not much Christianity left. And yet, those same people will walk by, walk by Walmart and somebody singing hymns out there, and they'll throw money in the hat. And they're singing, you know, sometimes glorious, marvelous, wonderful hymns about um, this person veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That, that's... The incarnation of the Son of God. So in Christ, in his incarnate work, we see God's kindness and God's love. So that's 
when salvation was accomplished, but we also have what salvation is based on here, and that's in the first part of verse 5, or the non-meritorious basis of salvation. So we have the historical accomplishment of salvation, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, and now we have the non-meritorious basis of salvation, considered negatively first, not by works or the the basis of salvation, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. He saved us. What's the basis for him saving you? It's not by your works. Okay, that's pretty clear. And notice the types of works the saved were involved with before being saved. Again, verse 3. We ourselves were also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. If it was based on our works, people would be saved based on these kinds of works. Foolishness, disobedience, deception, serving lusts, serving pleasures, living in malice, living in envy, being hateful, and hating one another. Nobody wants to say, wow, you want to get saved? Do all those sins in verse 3, and that will be the basis upon... Actually, one of the reasons why we have a contemplation every week on one of the Ten Commandments is that we can say that the Ten Commandments is the heart of the moral law revealed in Scripture for us. If you want to go to heaven, obey those perfectly. We can, we can say that because it's, in one sense, true. But we are not able, since the fall, it condemns us all. It still shows the way of righteousness, but we are not able to comply with its demands. So salvation is based not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Now, this is the universal testimony of the Bible since the fall into sin. Let me just go back to Ephesians. You can turn there if you would like. Fascinating text. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. Now, Ephesians is another letter written by the Apostle Paul to a, a church in Ephesus, which is ancient Asia Minor, modern Turkey. This is what he says to Christians, to believers, to those who are saved. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, verse 17, Ephesians chapter 4, that you should, now watch what he does here, no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. No longer means you used to walk like they did, like unbelievers, but you should no longer do this in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Who? Now watch this. Being past feeling. have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Then the first word of verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ. You didn't learn Christ in such a way as to take him as your savior and then just continue in your sins because something 
was wrought in you. Something changed. Now those kind of statements in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, uh, Titus 3, 3, can be multiplied from the Old and New Testament themselves. The basis of salvation is not our works. I've quoted this before too. George Whitfield once said, works, works, a man gets to heaven by works. I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. He was right. He actually said that on Twitter a few years ago. That's what my note says here. So if it's not based on our works, which we have done in righteousness, what is the basis of this salvation? But according to his mercy. There it is right there. But according to his mercy, this is a great news for sinners. God is merciful. God pities those in need and God comes to their aid. Now, this is not the same as human pity, human mercy. Uh, You see a dog hit by a car on the freeway and you want to go over and help it, but there's four lanes between you and where the dog got hit and you are in a creaturely sense restricted from being able to carry out the disposition of our hearts. God's mercy, God's pity is not like that. God's mercy and God's pity is the goings forth from God of his love toward those who can't help themselves and he helps them. He actually gets the job done, okay? Big difference between us and God because we can purpose to be very pitiful and piteous, merciful, and not be able to carry out our intentions or our desires. God comes to our aid full of tender compassion. One man puts it this way, the mercy of God contemplates man as one who is bearing the consequences of sin, who is in a pitiable condition, and who therefore needs divine help. Okay? He saved us. When was the accomplishment of this salvation, that salvation outside of me? But When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared... What is the basis for it? Well, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but instead the basis for us is according to his mercy, he saved us. So salvation comes to sinful man because God sees man in a pitiable state in need of not merely self-help or horizontal help, but divine help. And therefore, man must be helpless in himself to bring forth his own salvation. Psalm 109.21 says, Your mercy is good. And I think that's Psalm 103. Endure it forever. Your mercy is good. The mercy of God is the goodness of God in execution. The love and goodness of God in execution. Psalm 115.1 says that glory is to be given to God due to his mercy. That is, we are, to, we are to pay homage to God because of his mercy. Not according to works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. 
And then the execution of divine mercy terminating in the souls of individual persons is the grounds upon which we say, Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Psalm 118.29 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth, endures forever. You know who mercy is for? Mercy is for the helpless. That's one thing you have to come to. I, uh, unless something huge happens, like God has either done something or is doing something in me now or has done something in the past and now he's bringing it to bear on my own soul. I am helpless. So mercy is for the helpless, for the hopeless in themselves, but for the hopeful in God that he's going to do what he says he's going to do according to his word. But mercy is also the reception of mercy, but according to his mercy, is the grounds for which those who receive mercy should say, thank you, all the time, uh, and sometimes more than others. So we have the simple assertion, he saved us. Then we have four things we learn about this salvation. When it was accomplished, when the kindness and love of God appeared. What it's not and is based on, not according to works, but according to his mercy. And third, how it's applied. This is in verse uh, 5 at the end, verse 6. The personal application of salvation is what I call this. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is the language of renewal and cleansing, washing of regeneration and renovation, uh, new life given. God applies the salvation purchased by Christ outside of us through the work of the Holy Spirit upon us and within us. So we could say this, God regenerates, and God renews our souls. Now, why does he do it, you know, why me? You ever ask that question? Why me? Well, the answer is not because I'm me. Because none of us are anything but guilty sinners in ourselves. It's just mercy. It's according to his will. Regeneration and renewal comes as a gift, as the result of the work of Christ outside of us and for us, coming to us. Not because of our works, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So he makes us Alive to God when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 and following. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He convinces us of our guilt before God. He cleanses us. 
He imparts new life into the soul so we can see Jesus for all he is, is a complete, perfect, merciful, and willing Savior. You don't see, don't, you don't come to those conclusions uh, like math equations. You come to those conclusions by virtue of the mercy of God. You know, how many of us are going to say, you know, when I was in this process of becoming a Christian, I don't know exactly when I get saved, but I was just smarter than other people. I put two and two together. People aren't saved because they're dumb. We don't want to say, you realize, there are very intelligent people that are unbelievers way more intelligent than probably all of us put together that are out there all over the place. It's not just an equation. Oh, I'm, I'm down. It's a bad time in my life. I need to throw religion on. I'll just become a Christian. You can say that all you want. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about religious affiliation on a horizontal level. He's talking about divine grace coming from heaven and enlightening dark souls to see themselves for who they are, for God for who he is, and Christ for who he is. That's what he's talking about. Uh, Salvation is of the Lord. This part of this passage, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit should lead us to this conclusion. If I am a believer, God changed me. God changed me. Regeneration changes us not, uh, from the inside out. It comes from the outside as a gift, But it doesn't come horizontally from others. You don't take a pill and get regenerated. You don't go to the doctor and he regenerates you. You don't go to your pastor and he regenerates you. You don't go to any religious leader and they cause you to be regenerated. Regeneration is an act of God in the soul, applying the merits of Christ to unworthy sinners. Here's how uh, one man put it. There is a change that God effects in man, radical and reconstructive in its nature, called new birth, new creation, regeneration, renewal, a change that cannot be accounted for by anything that is in lower terms than the interposition of the almighty power of God. See what he just did? This change is so radical, so different than all other changes that we have to say this is divine interposition of almighty power. Now, here's another question. Okay, why did the divine interposition of almighty power terminate on you or you or you? Not according to works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his Mercy, you are in a pitiable state, and God sovereignly interposed divine power. He, he effected, he wrought changes within your soul. And it's not because you invited Jesus into your heart. 
See how dangerous that can be? Everybody, anybody that feels bad about your life, all heads bowed and eyes closed, raise your hand. If you feel bad about anything, raise your hand. You know, if not everybody raised their hand, you've got a room full of liars. Okay, now, now, the next thing is walk forward and come up here and, and you know, receive Jesus. Now, we've got to be careful. People don't, a lot of people that do that, they don't mean evil by it. They think that's the way to do it. But do you, you know how many kids I could get to come up here every week? After, actually, I wouldn't want to see some of you every week. But, you know, I can work on kids, work on their hearts. Say, don't you love pastor? Oh, yes. Well, but if you love Jesus, you'd prove it by walking down here to the pastor. See how I could manipulate that way? Don't come down here. I don't want to see you up here, Eddie. <laughs> But I want to see you in Christ and all the, all the other kids, okay? And how do you get in Christ? How will they hear unless they have a preacher, Romans 10? How will they preach unless they're sent? How will they hear him whom they have not heard? How will they hear Christ himself unless the Christ-ordained means is in their life? Hearing Christ through the preacher. The governing disposition, this author goes on, the character, the mind and will of sinners are renewed. And so the person is now able to respond to the call of the gospel and enter into privileges and blessings of the divine vocation, of the divine calling, of the divine calling you to these things. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, in our first creatureliness, we didn't cause ourselves to be in the womb of our mothers. And in our second birth, our second creatureliness, we don't cause ourselves to be born from above. We're born from above. I once was lost, but now I found myself. I got in touch with the divine spark within. That's a quote from Nancy Pelosi, by the way. The divine spark within. It's within all of us. We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That doesn't sound like a divine spark to me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Had fuzzy vision, but now I got some glasses and I can kind of see. Was blind, but now I see. Don't you like the old authors? They just use poetic language, and tell it like it is. Was blind, but now I see. What's that other line? Oh. That, somebody changed the word from wretch to worm or such a one instead of wretch. 
I remember my wife, these veins started protruding out of her neck, horns started to grow up. She got a tail started coming out of her when we were, somebody put it up on the screen, we were out of church a long time ago. Such a one as I, or such a, something like that, instead of worm, such a worm as I. Um, you ever heard the story about John Gersher who's lecturing on total depravity one time? R.C. Sproul had a mentor. His name was John Gershner. That's why Sproul talks that way. So Gershner's lecturing on total depravity. And he said something like, men are rats in sin. I like rats. Ah, you know, who likes rats? Don't raise your hand on that one. And so during the Q&A, a lady raises her hand, and she says, I demand you retract that statement about men are like rats. The Bible says that men and women were created in the image of God. And Gershner says something like this, I, I, I will retract it and, and restate it. Men are worse than rats. <laughs> rats do what they were supposed to do. We don't. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. So the immediate result of regeneration is faith in the Son of God. And then what transpires after that is a life of learning and hopefully increasing gratefulness shown forth in dependence on God, prayer, and obedience to God's law, not to gain, but having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Well, there's a fourth thing about salvation that we'll look at after we eat. And that is what salvation guarantees or the glorious benefits of salvation. The simple assertion, he saved us. The accomplishment of this salvation, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared. The basis of this salvation, not our works, God's mercy. The application of the salvation, not by virtue of anything we do, but when it is done to us, the washing and the regeneration. And then the fourth thing is the glorious benefits of salvation. That, having been justified by his grace, we should add our works to his grace to ensure that we get eternal life. Doesn't say that. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The hope, uh, hope there is not, yeah, wishful thinking. Hope in the New Testament sense is the confident expectation that God's going to do what God said he's going to do. And he's going to do it in his own timing. The hope, the confident expectation that eternal life has been given to me and I'll ultimately experience in its fullness in the future, not by works of righteousness, but his mercy. When was his mercy best seen? When the accomplished salvation of our Savior was wrought for us 2,000 years ago. What does salvation guarantee? 
that which eye has not seen, neither has ear heard, all ha- that the Lord has in store for those who love him. And after we eat, I'll try to unpack that section more. I commend to Christians to no longer live as you used to, but based on the great salvation of the fact that he saved you, um, New Year's resolution to be more dependent, more consciously dependent, and more grateful in the way I live than I did last year. That's actually a pretty safe one because nobody can say, well, I was pretty good last year. It's going to be hard to best 2022. New Year's resolution for unbelievers. You say, well, I believe the gospel if God, like, showed forth love and kindness somewhere, somehow, some way. The quintessential expression of divine love and goodness and kindness already appeared. Now we are to believe the record, believe God's word, and come to Christ. By the way, you come to Christ foul, right? Remember verse 3, those yucky things that the believers used to live in? That's what unbelievers are. If you're an unbeliever, you don't, come, you don't like, okay, this week I realized I'm one of those unbelievers that's guilty. So next week I'll be unguilty, and then maybe next week I'll come to Christ. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. We come to be cleansed, not having Having cleansed yourselves of all your guilt, go to Jesus. That, that's not the gospel. It's go to him to be cleansed, to be forgiven, and to be an heir of the grace and promise of eternal life. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. We ask that you would help us as believers to marvel in the great love and mercy of God in Christ for us, to us, and in us. We also pray for any unbelievers to see their need for him and to come to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.